Welcome to the video podcast Richard Gage 911 Unleashed, where truth and unity matter. Take the deep dive with highly influential voices in and around the 9-11 truth movement. And welcome, everybody. Oops, that's a sneak peek of you-know-who. I'll bring him back in just a moment. Uh, In the meantime, um, we will do that. And uh, welcome to uh, Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed. It is my incredible pleasure to bring to you the guest whom you just had a sneak peek of, Mr. Massimo Mazzucco, famed Italian film director and filmmaker of September 11th, New Pearl Harbor. Uh, This is very exciting for me to have Massimo on because we, we have used clips from his film, which is a five-hour film, uh, on um, the World Trade Center. He's done some exceptional work. In fact, I'm going to play a couple of pieces for you. Um, he, he's, uh, he's amazing. I got a couple of announcements before we bring Massimo on. on. I want to tell you that we're full on for 9-11 Con, the Pentagon, with Barbara Honiger with Craig McKee, with David Chandler, opposing theories about what happened at the Pentagon. We're bringing them all together on March 19th, Saturday. This is going to be very, very special. And so I don't want you to miss it. We're going to be promoting it full on starting uh, this week. And so... uh, uh, you, you, we're going to be doing that conference, 9-11 Con, an all-day conference, every month after that. So be aware that there's a lot coming on Shanksville. Uh, there's, there's a conference coming on uh, the World Trade Center. There's a conference coming on the financial crimes. There's a conference coming on whodunit. There's a conference coming on foreign influence. On 9-11, all 9-11, uh, parallels between 9-11 and COVID. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're unleashed, as you can tell. Uh, I'm not bound by the narrow spectrum of work that I was when I represented the 3,500 architects over at AE 9-11 Truth. If you want to learn more <clears throat> about my fascinating history with AE 9-11 Truth, uh, <laughs> starting three months ago, um, things turned around quite a bit. Look at our website, richardgage911.org, and uh, you will uh, you will catch up if you haven't already. Um, and there's a lot going on with that website. These podcasts twice a week are uh, key among them, bringing you people who have done the research who have climbed the wall of denial and gotten on the other side of it and woke up uh, the public mind, particularly my guest tonight. And Gail is in the background. Um, She's uh, actually uh, on her second to last day of work, uh, at work work. She is um, 
uh, very excited to come to work full time in the office with me on Richard Gage 911, promoting social media so we can get this out to the public, get it out to the mainstream media, doing everything we can to break open the public mind with excellent uh, tools in our tool belt, uh, such as the one brought by our created by our guest uh, tonight. Having mentioned that, my guest is Italian film director Massimo Mizuko. He, he made The New American Century, uh, Cancer, The Forbidden Cures, Global Deceit, The Other Dallas, and American Moon. Join us as he walks us through the high points of his landmark five-hour documentary on September 11th, New Pearl Harbor, where the most important issues in the last 20 years of the 9-11 debate are presented in some detail. Massimo shows us the positions of those who reject the official narrative, those of us in the 9-11 truth movement, and the positions of those who support the official narrative. They're called the debunkers. So the best part of this film, which I just recently, last night, reviewed, uh, are... The best part for me was the 12 parallels between Pearl Harbor, what got us into World War II, that attack, and September 11th. We're going to go through those in a little detail today. Where were the Air Force interceptors? What were the military air drills that confused the air traffic controllers on 9-11? How did the military chain of command break down on 9-11? What happened at the Pentagon or what didn't happen? What happened in Shanksville and what didn't happen? What happened at the World Trade Center Towers and what didn't happen? He doesn't focus exclusively on any of these. He covers all of them. He's a filmmaker, screenwriter, and journalist, you may not have known. He has no political affiliations, arguably one of the foremost 9-11 truthers in his country. Mizuko is the editor of luogocommune.net, a popular Italian news website that grew out of his investigation into 9-11. Currently, the website covers all the most important issues at stake in the new millennium, from big pharma, yeah, that needs to be exposed, to world economics, yeah, from alternative energy to the attacks on civil liberties, especially with this new disease that's going around and the reaction to it. After an early career as a successful fashion photographer, Mizuko wrote and directed several feature films, both in Europe and the United States. After 9-11, he chose to turn all his efforts to documentaries. Mizuko's global deceit in 2005 exposes the major faults in the 9-11 official story. It was broadcast on Italian TV in 2006, serving as a platform for a full-fledged national debate, which made Italy the only country to date to have thoroughly discussed 9-11 in the mainstream media. We should be so fortunate here in the U.S., Mazzucco also participated in several television debates presenting the Italian audience with the most up-to-date findings of the 9-11 truth movement. Other stories by Mazzucco broadcast on Italian TV included the well-known Seven is Exploding, a piece on Building Seven, 
a point-by-point -point rebuttal of the Italian 9-11 debunkers' attacks, and an expose on the struggles of Ground Zero first responders. His second documentary on 9-11, The New American Century, in 2007, covers the political and historical aspects of the inside job, and in particular, the history of the neocons. Supported by world-famous filmmakers such as Costa Gavras, Wim Wenders, and Ken Loach, the New American Century premiered in the U.S. at the 2009 Oakland 9-11 Film Festival. Mizuko also appeared, produced a documentary on the RFK assassinations, assassination, which was broadcast on Italian TV on, in June of 2008. He also made a documentary on UFOs in 2009, uh, focusing on the military cover-up since the 1950s. Well, let me not delay the inevitable and the wonderful uh, encounter with uh, Massimo Mizuko. Uh, Massimo, you are here. How are you, my friend? Hello, Richard. Hello to everybody. <laughs> nice to be back, at least virtually, in California. I lived there for 20 years, and uh, I feel kind of homesick now. I live in Italy now for the last seven years. But uh, whenever we go back to Pacific time, somehow I feel at home again. Yay. Well, that's where we are. It's... Uh... I think uh, just after 1 p.m. Pacific time, our original effort was to start at noon, but we had a glitch, and here we are again. So I hope everybody uh, enjoys uh, what we're going to be talking about today, particularly um, your efforts with 9-11. And let me take you all the way back to the beginning of your awareness of what really happened on 9-11. How did that happen? The, the, the becoming interested in the issue? Yeah. Uh, I have to, something happened before 9-11 that kind of triggered everything on 9-11 for me. Oh. I, re I remember it was August, uh, August 2001. And I remember watching the news with my wife on CNN and we're sitting around and watching the news. And so at a certain point, I hear about this Taliban people whom I have ne never heard of before in my life, who suddenly were like the bad guys. And, uh, and everything was against these Taliban people. And I never heard of them before. And suddenly they're blowing up religious monuments and they really are made to look like the bad guys. And I remember telling my wife, literally, I would not be surprised if the United States will not find an excuse or another soon enough to go into Afghanistan. Because it was at that time, on, on, on August 2001, that the Taliban completely blocked the production of opium. In, in, in Afghanistan. And I already knew then that opium was a great source for, for CIA and black ops. Okay. So that's why I said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised because of this opium problem that Americans would find an excuse to go into Afghanistan. When 9-11 when happened and I start hearing Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden. I mean, we didn't even know who was on those planes. Remember, throughout the whole day of, of September 11. Nobody knew even who was on those planes. And already the name was coming in Afghanistan. And, and I'm, you know, come on. It's, it's easy to make the connection. Once you understand how this works, it's easy to make the connection. So from there, everything unfolded. But I have to say, I was originally convinced that the Pentagon had been a fake attack because the first one to come out with some evidence was uh, the French guy, um, Thierry Maison, yeah. who made that book, uh, 
the, the, the impossible imposture or something like that. Where he came out with the, with a quiz actually on the internet saying find a plane, and actually you you know when you saw for the first time the pictures shot by a marine named I think Ingersoll who show, who showed the facade of the Pentagon after it had been hit but before it collapsed, you could really easily tell that there was hardly any plane there that went in. So that started my curiosity, but it took me a while before I accepted the idea that the actual that actually the twin towers were taken down, because I kept I remember thinking in 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 those days that would have been too much. I, I kept thinking Americans would never do this to themselves, you know, to take down two buildings like that to kill your own people in the yeah. way it was done. It was too much for me. That's where I came from, and it took me a while to adjust to the possibility. Then, as I discovered psychologically, once you adjust, once you accept the possibility. Uh, then the evidence will come in just like, you know, like rivers, of course. Otherwise, you kind of, you block it out. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's exactly the psychological problem. That's why when I started my website in Italy, which, by the way, you almost pronounced perfectly. I tried <laughs> so you. hard. It's not, when I picked that name, little did I know that I was ever going to have to pronounce it in English. But <laughs> <laughs> How do you pronounce it in Italian? Luogo Comune. There it spells L-U-O-G-O-C-O-M-U-N-E.net. But you don't have to visit. It's all in Italian anyway. But what anyway, when mean? I... Excuse me? What does it mean? It means a commonplace, but it's, it has a double meaning. It means a commonplace, but also a, a platitude. It's something that you repeat all the time. It's a, it's a cute name for, for because it has a double meaning. Oh, so okay. when I started my, my first page on 9-11, I remember it was 2004 when I opened the website. The very first line of the 9-11 section, which became the center of attention for all the Italian researchers afterwards, started by saying 9-11 is a psychological problem. It's not a technical problem. Once you accept psychologically the possibility, the evidence will be simply overwhelming. And that has remained my main point since. I, I think I, I, I hit the, the nail on the head by saying that, because the difficulties that most people have in accepting 9-11 is that you have to accept a set of truths that is really uncomfortable. And that's why people reject it. I always say that had the same exact thing happened with the Chinese, imagine a 9-11 in China. Imagine that it was the Chinese who hit their own buildings because they need to invade, I don't know what, Mongolia. Okay. Imagine that we, after five minutes, we would go, oh, come on, guys, you did it. It's so obvious because uh -huh. it would be easy to see that in someone else. Right. But when it comes to have to admit to our own, that we, our own people did this to ourselves, then it's more difficult. That's, that's the step that it took me. It took me a few months before I accepted that idea. Then again, as months. I said. It, it took me five years, but I, <laughs> I, didn't even, I hadn't heard any evidence actually during those five years. Well, you, you were, as far as I remember, I started hearing about you on 2006 or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah. Right. And again, when you mentioned my biography, you said my first film was broadcast in Italy. It was called Ingano Globale, which means global deceit. When it was broadcast, you said it contained the evidence. It really didn't contain the evidence because the evidence came only after A&E came around. Up ah. until then, up until 2006, 2007, I remember that our effort was actually having to deal with no scientific evidence. It was obvious, so to speak, that those buildings came down not on their own, but we couldn't really, we asked, you know, the researchers were not 
architects and engineers, we couldn't really grasp and, and wrap our hand around scientifically around the, the collapses. After A&E came about, then everything became clear and also easily uh, provable in a scientific way. So that was, for me, it was a major change in the narration in, in the history of the debate. I, I go pre-A&E and after A&E, and there's two completely different periods of history. Wow, that's quite a compliment. So uh, I'm glad I had uh, a part in in uh, that uh, divide, that great divide for you and, and for others. I oh, it made it mighty, you made it much easier for everybody. Because after that, you have the arguments that are scientific, and people just cannot answer those. It's uh -huh. very simple. You know, explain wow. how you get acceleration in free fall. You can't explain that. So it's simple as that. It makes our job very easily in public debates. Unfortunately, I was going on TV before you guys came about because the, the, the national debate you described happened in Italy in 2006, 2007. Okay. By 2007, it was over. I mean, there was two years, a year and a half, in which every television channel po would find anything possible in order to talk 9-11. It was a very hot debate. Then, of course, it died down. Everybody got their own convictions. Those who remained with the official story stayed with it. Those who changed their mind, changed their mind. But it became kind of done. And I was sorry to, that you came about after, because had I had those informations oh. that you brought up already, it would have been an even better, I would have done a, an even better job. Yeah, sorry I didn't wake up sooner. <laughs> <laughs> in, wow. In, 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 at, at least, but you're going now much longer than expected. So, okay, you, you're a latecomer, but you keep going and keep going also, which also astonishes me. Every time I get your, 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 your mail saying, you know, you have this initiative, that initiative, I go, wow, this guy's got stamina. Because <laughs> I've, I, no, I was burned out after 10 years of 9-11, after I finished oh. the Newport Harbor, which was 2013, I said, enough, I cannot even talk about 9-11 anymore. In fact, this is the first time I go back to talk 9-11 uh, after seven years of finishing that film, because you just couldn't even handle it anymore. You instead keep going. So my congratulations to you. Thank you, my friend. That's awesome. So what ha while you're waiting for the, the, uh, the technical information from the architects and engineers, which you incorporated in 2015 into New Pearl Harbor, but before that, um, tell us about um, your, your effort um, building seven. I did not get the chance to see that film. Uh, I did not make an actual film about Building Seven. I think there was some confusion there when you, oh. when you, when you, when you. I, I made a, a short on the Pentagon, which was oh. actually the very first thing that Italian television ever picked up on. I it was what? called uh, the the Pentagon film is a fake. I was comparing. This was two thousand and seven. I think two thousand and six. I was comparing the the two sh the two uh, the, the parking lot cameras shot from the Pentagon one with the other, and showing that, that there was discrepancies. That was the very first thing that I did before the first movie. But I never did anything particular on, well, on what, Building 7. No. What was 7 is exploding? A piece on Building 7. That, that's in the uh, uh, the introduction you sent me. Yeah, uh, I must... Look, I've done so many. I that didn't I make use. it up. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I don't remember making a film about that. It might have been a chapter that I later incorporated into the final film. Oh. So uh, I, I don't remember. But again, also, also the Building 7, I couldn't not have done a great job before I got your, your, your guys' information. 
because huh. especially on building seven, you are the guys who really uh, turn the tables on, on the whole thing. So whatever it was, I, I wouldn't recommend go looking for it right now. <laughs> okay, it, it's, it's dated. It's outdated. It's old. That's great. So um, then along came the architects and engineers, and you took some of our work and included it in your film. But guess what? Your film turned out to be exceptional uh, for me to include in my presentation. And I want to play a one-minute clip uh, from it uh, right now. And you're not going to believe this. Uh, this is one of the most powerful pieces to help people really get. Um, and, and it's it's out of context. It's only a minute long. But it graphically shows us what could have happened and uh, to the twin towers, but what and and not and what shouldn't have happened. Here we go. Kind is what we should have seen when the top section of the towers collapsed onto the lower one. The upper and lower sections should have mutually destroyed each other until all the energy is dissipated and the system comes to a rest. Alternatively, as shown in this experiment with two towers made of snow, the top section could have fallen off to the side after the initial collapse. What could not have happened is this. A little tiny chunk of the building can't possibly fall and crush the entire structure below it. This is such a simple, fundamental concept that architects and engineers were astonished in seeing it totally ignored by NIST. This is high school physics, and our whole society is being led to believe that these fundamental laws of physics, hard science, don't apply anymore. Uh, but of course they do. And uh, that's why uh, we're talking about it. And that's what enabled you to make such great headway. Tell us about uh, the success of, of this film. Well, I have to say it has received, I think, more than a million views on YouTube. And for a five-hour documentary, uh, I mean, for people to be willing to sit through five hours, I, I, I consider that a good success. Uh, the reason why it's five hours long is not I because it's not because I like to indulge on unnecessary details. It's because, as you described before, for each of the issues discussed, I present first I present the 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 charges, so to speak. Then I present the answer to those charges by the debunkers, and then I debunk the debunker if I can. So each issue is treated three times, is approached three times. I call it A, B, and C approach. Usually what you see in, and this is very interesting, what you see in institutional films like uh, documentaries like History Channel will make, or National Geographic will make a documentary about 9-11, they will only go A and B. So they will say, for example, uh, the critics of the official version or the, the, the conspiracy theorist claim that these are puffs coming out of the uh, th th these are puffs of cement coming out of the towers during because they're explosions but and they present the, the counter answer the b answer what really popular mechanics says is that they're only puffed because the brain, windows the, are, are breaking so that's really what you're really seeing is glass from the windows that is being pushed out and it stops there so you get a and b a and b a and b and people at the end are very confused because they, they always get what seems to be a credible charge against the official version, but yeah. then what seems to be a credible answer to the charge. So, if, you know, the best that can happen is they walk away confused, which is exactly the 
the the the the intention, the goal of those documentaries. When when they when National Geographic or you know uh, History Channel, whoever decides to make a documentary about this because they know they feel they have to because the issue is too big to be ignored, then what they do is they use this A and B, A and B, A and B technique. People at the end are confused at best, and nothing really comes out of that. By adding C, by adding the third layer of discussion, which disproves B, which disproves the explanation by the debunkers, then you really win the game. But of course, films like mine will not be shown on television. Or if they if they are, which they try to do at some point with me, they cut away C. They only uh, they want to leave it. They want to leave it unresolved. They say, yeah, yeah, we're going to show it, but we're only going to show one position and the counter position, and we let people decide. And I say, uh-uh, no, no, then you're not using my film. Because that's the whole game. That's exactly your game. It's to present A and B and let, leave people confused. If I have C and C can clarify, why not use it? Oh, but we can't go that far because that would be really proving that it was an inside job. And they go, hello? <laughs> That's the whole point. So that's usually where the, the, the discussion breaks between me and the, and the networks. Yes. And in fact, um, oh, that didn't work. I wanted to show people. Uh, I guess I can't. Um, the, your film opens up with uh, the 12 parallels between Pearl Harbor and September 11th. So in this initial section, uh, you did not... Uh, Ha, you 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 didn't uh, ha, go back and forth with the debunkers. Uh, actually, you did a little bit. Um, but let's talk about these twelve uh, parallels. Parallels, because uh, it's extraordinary. A, a lot of people don't know that uh, Pearl Harbor was a false flag operation in a sense that um, you proved. Uh, well, you didn't, but uh, others have, and you cite them. Others that, have, yes. That that uh, that uh, the president of the United States and the CIA knew that they were uh, was was the CIA wasn't wasn't together yet, but the intelligence agencies such as they were, um, yeah. uh, or, or were they? They were they were in 1944, and then 1947 was Pearl Harbor, right? Uh, so, Pearl Harbor was 1941, uh, but on 40, September 7th, uh, December 7th, 1941. Yeah. So anyway, it allowed the United States to enter the war. Well, you you need to understand that the United States needed badly to get into World War II because a they needed to help defeat Hitler and because they wanted to kind of get a a, a grasp after the war and control all over Western Europe, which they did. But you cannot just you know as the United States, you cannot just declare war onto somebody because the United States Constitution does not allow that. You need to somehow be attacked first. If, Sorry, that's me. Yeah. If if you're if you're attacked, then the president can go to 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 Congress and say we've been attacked. It's been uh, what did he call the September uh, the the December seventh, nineteen forty one, a day that we live in infamy. He pretends to be completely uh, incensed by it, and therefore we must go into war and defeat the Japanese Empire which is the excuse they needed. Of course, what happens is that the United States is not an easy country or an easy target to attack. So here you have, for example, parallels. They had to remove all the air defense from Pearl Harbor in order to for the Japanese attack to succeed. 
So they yeah. sent planes all over the place, which is exactly the same thing that they had to do on September 11th. You know, with yeah, the air defense four, that we have, four jets, four jets to 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 uh, right. protect the east coast of the U.S. Just just think of this: on the morning of September 11, there were only four jets ready on alert to defend the entire eastern sector. So the the, the northeastern sector, the New York, uh, the, the part that was actually hit by the attacks. On the afternoon at six o'clock on September 11, 300 jets, planes, uh, military planes were going back and forth in the American skies. Where were all those planes in the morning? Out, sent out somewhere in Alaska, somewhere out in the, in the, in the Atlantic. Some were grounded, some were not responding. The communications broke. I mean, everything happened on that morning. Now, we, you know, this is not a, a place to go into detail, but when you start looking at all the so-called missing links in communications, you cannot but think that they were obviously intentional. I mean, the most important people during the, in the defense disappeared completely, went out of the radar. Donald Rumsfeld, nobody could find him between 9 and 9.30 <laughs> during the moment that his country is under attack at the Pentagon. Then you have In my film, you can see military people saying, we were looking for him. We didn't know where he was. I mean, this is Secretary of Defense. You have your country under attack and nobody can find you? He's probably hiding in a bathroom somewhere waiting for everything to happen so he doesn't have to come out and order a strike on the diverted planes. And when he did come out, he was picking up plane parts. And he has nothing better to do than go go out on on, on the Pentagon. Excuse me, if you're going out on the Pentagon picking up places, that means that you already know that nothing else is going to happen. How do you know there's not going to be another 24 planes that are going to attack your country? Why are you not sitting at your desk Assessing the situation because it means you already know something that we don't yet. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> this is just one example. I mean, when you, when you look at the, the the breaks in the chain of command, it, it's a joke. You have you have six or seven people in chain of command that goes down from you know from 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 the secretary of defense all the way down to the last person who needs to give the order to shoot down a plane or to divert a plane. Three of them are missing. So every other link. Is missing totally. Either somebody's in Puerto Rico, somebody's not available, somebody got sick the night before and was replaced by somebody who doesn't even know where to put his own hands. I mean, it's a joke. Unfortunately, it's a tragedy because of what happened. But if you look at it from the narrative angle, it's really a joke. And that happened at Pearl Harbor, too. And Pearl Harbor as well. Also, I mean, there's this writer, I think his name is, I don't remember the name, who actually published a book uh, and he actually shows a, 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 a fax, I mean, whatever the, a cable, a cable, which is the equivalent of a fax in the 90s, from uh, Roosevelt saying the United States wants uh, Japan to attack first. We want them to be the ones who attack first. So do not interfere until they attack. How much more clear than that can you be? And this That's pretty incredible. The admiral at at uh, at uh, Pearl Harbor, Kimmel, I think it was his name. He was not told. Of course, he wasn't, because had he been told, he would have saved his own man. The only way for 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 the Japanese attack to succeed is for not to tell to be on guard. So you have all your little ships lined up perfectly with with the military going playing golf or sunbathing or going to mass. 
It's the only way that you can succeed. Again, let's not forget, the United States is, and will remain for a long time, the strongest country in the world military-wise. So it's not like you attack Mexico or Cuba or Bolivia or something like that. I mean, it's not easy to attack the United States because it's meant to be protected. So in order to attack it, even with four planes, you have to move all the thing, all the pieces away to make room for that attack to happen. Well, uh, also we have incredible examples of foreknowledge uh, in Pearl Harbor and 9-11. Can you talk about that? Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, the name was Cordell Hall. Was the the uh, yeah Cornell Hall yeah Cornell Hall was Secretary, Secretary of State, of State. I think. yeah right at the time he knew and somebody says that in an interview in my film in the beginning three days in advance they even knew the date in which Japanese would attack on the on the fourth they already knew it would be the seventh so just think you've had three days if you wanted to to prepare but of course they did not want that to happen. Uh, here, of course, we have foreknowledge on 9-11. I mean, foreknowledge on 9-11 is ridiculous. The amount of warnings that came to the United States from Secret Services from all over the world is just ridiculous. Israeli yeah. uh, Secret Service says, look, there's something cooking here. Something is going to happen soon. It involves uh, it involves uh, hijacked planes. German Secret Service said that. The MI6 said that. Uh, who else? J Russians. Even the Russians says, look, guys, we see a lot of stuff going on. Be prepared because it's something involving hijacked planes is going to happen. And as, a, and as a response to that, you take all the jets and send them out on the same day, send them everywhere, and you only leave four planes. Come on. you know. And Condoleezza Rice, the memo that she got, but uh, bin Laden determined to attack in the United States? Well, the, the whole bin Laden thing is it's, it's a story in itself that, that deserves to be studied carefully, that will also show you how useful it is to have a patsy at hand, like in the Kennedy assassination. I mean, Kennedy gets killed at, I think they shoot him at 12.35. He dies at Parkland Hospital at 1 o'clock, and at 2 p.m. or 2.15, they already arrested Oswald. Uh, the importance to have a patsy at hand is huge because it will immediately stop people from asking questions. Uh -huh. When you have something like 9-11 happen, and I remember sitting in front of the TV. I mean, it was, I was in California. Somebody, some friend of mine woke me up and said, turn on TV. It was seven in the morning there. Uh, turn on TV. And I sat there and as, as I'm processing everything and I start hearing, you know, suspicions are on Osama bin Laden. I mean, as I said before, we didn't even know who was on those planes. And we actually would not have known who was on those planes ever because there were no Arab names on the, on the passengers' manifest. The only way we know that is because a letter was found in the suitcase of one of the uh, alleged terrorists that did not make it on the plane, and it contained a list with all their names. Then they matched the names with the pictures, and suddenly FBI in today says the name in the pictures... And Osama bin Laden, of course, is the, the one who sent them. The importance to have a, a, a patsy at hand, as I said, is fundamental because it will stop people from asking questions. If you allow for too many days to go on and all the details to come out, then people really start doubting. But if you give them a, a, a culprit right away, right. that's it. People sit down and say, okay, 
and it makes sense that it would be Bin Laden and Islamics because in 1993, they already tried to take down the Twin Towers, remember? So it all makes sense in the people's mind. Mm-hmm. Only those who really know the history of the bombing of 1993 will know yeah. that that was set up by the FBI themselves. Ramsey How about the U.S. Cole? Well, that's after. That's in, in 2000. That to blame Bin Laden himself, yes. But in general, to justify in in the in people's mind the idea that Islamics would attack the Twin Towers, the 1993 bombing of of the Twin Towers was fundamental, because there you had a guy named Ramzi Youssef, I think it was his name, was actually working with the FBI, and this came out. I, I can say this because we know this because it came out on, on a trial uh, through an informant. The FBI had provided Ramzi. Yousef with the bomb, the actual bomb that exploded in 1993 was provided to the terrorists by the FBI. They told him, of course, that it was an empty bomb, a a, a fake bomb. It turned out to be real, but it was provided by them. And this was proven at the trial. There are even articles on the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times saying this. This was actually set up by the FBI. But in the popular imagination, it was the Islamics who tried to take down the towers. So when you come to 9-11 and you attach bin Laden and Islamic terrorists to it, it made perfect sense and people asked no questions. But it came a long way. It was a long way coming. Wow. Well, finally, we have uh, vital information withheld. Uh, um, uh, Admiral Kimmel uh, was, was apparently set up to fail. I mean... Everybody, well, the intelligence agencies and, and the executive branch, at least the president, knew that Pearl that the Japanese were on their way to Pearl Harbor, but um, they failed to inform the admiral. I mean, <laughs> that's incredible. How does that? Uh, well, and, and we will be talked about uh, that. That gets into the other issue too. But do you have any other thoughts on that one? Uh, basically, no, as I said again, the, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Marines Army, the, 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 the military, is the best in the world. It, you can't just think you can attack any of its parts without softening the defense, so to speak. You, you cannot think of that because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen. I mean, they're not the best army in the world for no reason. So you have to pre-think. For example, again, go back to 9-11. On the night before, on the tenth, this was, this was uh, I, um, I'm, you know, my memory is a little failing here, but I think it was General. Um, I, I will come back with the name. Uh, it's in the film anyway. He specifically asked that the level of threat, the defensive level of threat in the Pentagon computers, were taken down one notch on the evening of December uh, of September tenth. Yep. Why would in heaven t- anybody take down the defense level when we know that all those attacks are that all all those all those warnings about the attacks exist? You would yep. raise, if anything, the level of attention. Yeah. Go plus one, not minus one. Things like that do not have an explanation. Uh, the same general, whose name now escapes me, who was at command at NORAD, disappeared completely from the screen, just, just like Rumsfeld did at the Pentagon. He also 
during the attacks between the attack on the on the second tower and the Pentagon attack, he decided to take a car and go from I don't know where he was to the military base, which is a 25 minute drive, during which nobody could reach him on the phone. That's George Marsh. What's his name? I think it's General George Marsh. Oh, excuse I, me. That's no. back. That's back uh, at Pearl Harbor. No, that's Pearl Harbor. No, this uh, look. Uh, you know, not, not my. He, he was in charge of of NORAD anyway. Uh, and for for him to, I mean, you have America under attack, and at the Pentagon you have the Ministry of Defense, Defense Secretary, unreachable, and here you have the the generals in command of the Nora defense disappeared from phone. Nobody could get him on the phone. So they didn't know what to do. I mean, how old is that? How, how many times can that happen? Uh, let's see if the name is there. Uh, you want to go down a little bit on the, yeah, this is go, go down a little bit on the other page. Okay. Right there. No, no, it, it, the chain of command. No, it's not listed the name, but anyway, he was the, it was the, the, the military in charge of 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 NORAD. Okay, and he's gone. And nobody can call him, so they don't they don't know what to do. And I mean, your own country is under attack, and you're driving through the countryside with the phone off. Come <laughs> on, guys, come on. That tells us something. Well, then after you talk about these parallels, um, you go into air defense. We talked a little bit about the interceptors. Uh, uh, and, and they're claiming a, a failure of imagination in the 9-11 Commission yeah. report and the, that there, there's an incompetence that one in, agency doesn't communicate well with the other. But they're, they're faking all of that, it seems. Well, this is called uh, the limited hangout. Uh, this, kind of, uh, this kind of proposition is called the limited hangout in which you only admit what's minimum necessary in order to explain what happened. I mean, if you, if you and I did this and people come to us and say, guys, didn't you, what were you thinking? The best thing we can come up, you and, and me, about this is, oh, look, we failed to communicate. Rachel says something, but I thought he meant something else. We failed to connect the dots. How else are you going to explain this? You have to admit something in order to cover the, the reality, the truth of it. Again, all, all the parts of the air defense, the debate is also built in three parts because, again, you have the question, for example, where are the interceptors or the incompetence theory and uh, or why did the defense work? So you have the answer by the debunkers. Oh, yes, uh, our radar system was working, but all the radars were turned inside, turned outside, waiting for a foreign enemy. Nobody thought that it would be a, a, an attack inside our territory, so we didn't have military raiders turn inside. And for people, this seems to be a reasonable enough answer to put the question to rest. Of course, if you come with the C part of the debate, you explain that, okay, sure, military raiders are not pointed inside because inside we have the civil system that looks inside. And guess what? They can talk to each other. They're connected. We have phones, you know, so people can actually talk. So, but again, the, the stupid explanation that the debunkers give you, it's always it always appears plausible. For well, so, for I mean, anybody who, had, go ahead. Speaking of the air traffic controllers, uh, they had uh, 
how many uh, false blips on their screen because of all of these drills uh, that uh, simulated hijackings on that very day. Again, we go back to the same issue. If we have to organize some hijackings like that, which were not real hijackings, by the way, but they have to appear like hijackings to attack the towers and, and the Pentagon and Shanksville, you have to confuse the air defense completely. So how do you do that? First of all, you send all the jets you can out to the ocean, to Canada, to Alaska, wherever you could. And then you can even after that, you need to confuse the people at the Raiders so they really don't know what they're looking at. Is this a fake hijacking part of a drill or is this a real one? Now, what are the odds, again, that on any given day, after you received all the warnings about a possible impending attack using hijacked airplanes, what are the odds that, A, you send all your jets, practically all your jets, away, and at the same time, you do military drills on the ground on for the Raider people so that they can actually exercise in combating a possible attack with planes that they don't have because they're all gone out. <laughs> I mean, just think of that. You know, if you want to do a drill, do it with real planes that are on, on, on hand. Don't wait for the day that they're all gone to make the drill. What's the point? Yeah, and they and I I you 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 note in the in the film that even when the after the twin towers were both hit, and up until just after the Pentagon was hit, they did not stop these exercises. Is that true? By the way, the name came to me, Mike Eberhardt. That was that Eberhardt. was the general Eberhardt was the general in charge. Yeah. No, this is another thing. Because they could not find Eberhardt, he was supposed to recall. The, um, the exercises. After 9.03, like you said, when the second tower gets hit, when the first tower gets hit, you can think of an accident. Yeah. Possibly. But when the second gets hit, everybody in the world knows it's a terrorist attack with hijacked airplanes. So at 9.04, you would expect that all the drills are called back. Everything. But none of them was called back until when? Until 10.010. The order came to the radio from NORAD, suspend all air drills immediately and come back to base, was at 10.10 o'clock. <laughs> that is, I think, four or six minutes after the fourth plane has crashed in Pennsylvania. How slow can you be in recalling your planes? Uh, that's that's direct evidence to me. I mean, that's that's incredible. But let's that's jump an to offense. the... That's an offense. More than direct evidence. It's an offense to intelligence it's, to come and tell crazy. me that you couldn't Excuse me? It's treason. Well, yeah, also. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at least somebody should have gotten fired for for not doing, for not canceling them. And did they get fired? No, they got promoted. They got promoted. This is the other other funny part. Those responsible, General Myers, who was uh, was temporary chief of, uh, chief of, uh, chief of, how do you call it, Um, joint operations, I mean, it was the highest military Joint in the Chiefs moment. of Staff. Joint Chiefs of Staff, right. Myers. And Eberhardt, which was Commander NORAD, at 9.04, talked on the phone. They both admitted they talked on the phone, but did not discuss bringing back the planes. <laughs> Each of them should have been uh, gone to trial for treason. Instead, after two weeks 
or three weeks after the attacks, uh, Eberhard was promoted to I don't know what, and Myers was promoted to permanent Joint Chiefs of Staff. Well, they did a good uh, job. I guess. Actually, the hearings on the Senate for his promotion took place, I think, on September 16th, which is four days after. I mean, the, the, the towers were still smoldering. That there was They were still finding people. And the hearings were held at the Senate to promote Myers, the guy under whose watch the worst attack on America could take place. This itself should tell you who's, who, was, who was responsible. Not one person has gone to jail or even gone, got a reprimand from what happened on September 11th. But it was the hijackers themselves who flew these planes. So uh, tell us about them. <laughs> says here, piss poor student pilots. That's a quote from somebody, isn't it? Yeah, piss poor student pilots was a quote from one of the instructors who basically said the guy who hit the Pentagon, who's allegedly hit the Pentagon, could not fly a Cessna single engine thing. He wouldn't speak, he did not speak English enough to learn how to fly a Cessna. They would not let him fly solo because he would probably crash whenever those little planes. And suddenly, he does this incredible turnaround over the Pentagon and dives. I mean, we've been all, uh, the entire story of this maneuver at the Pentagon in itself, it would make for a great a comic film. This guy, official, the official story says that this guy who has never flown, as I said, a jet before in his life, was only taking classes in a simulator, but of a different plane, 737, which is totally different in terms of where you put your hands, basically. Suddenly hijacks at 757, arrives, thanks to the automatic pilot, arrives over the Pentagon. He can see the Pentagon down there. So, look, God helped you come all the way here. All you need to do is just lower your, 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 your stick and hit the Pentagon on the roof, which happens to be quite large. So chances are you might not even miss it, okay? What does he do instead? He sees the Pentagon. He goes, ah, I'm too high. So I'm going to go around, <laughs> and he takes a wide five-mile turn, which makes him lose sight of the, of the target, by the way, and comes back through this largest turn to approach almost near the ground. Because he wasn't, it would have been too easy probably for him to go from the top down, you know? He says, no, I want to make this difficult. I want to really show people how I can fly planes. So he... he, he, he I'm sorry, Richard. I'm I'm going back to 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 the story, and I cannot but laugh. And I'm you know some people may get offended because I seem to take this too too lightly. But again, if if you study the details of of of, of the official story, and especially after so many years for me, they when they come back to me, it's just a big 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 joke. Everybody who has not denounced this is responsible. I think. And uh, all the journalists that know exactly what happened but decided to shut up, to me, are responsible for not telling the truth. Had the journalists done what the journalists should do and asked the proper questions, the September 11 story would have been solved on September 12. 24 hours after, it would have been obvious to anybody that this was not the, the true story, what they were telling us. And by not denouncing it, they became accomplices of it, I think. 
Yeah, and it's people, uh, only a few brave journalists are, are speaking the truth about 9-11. Um, it's, it's very few. Uh, and thank you for being uh, one of them very early on, even without the technical evidence that you, uh, you found when AE came aboard. Um, but um, I, I understand that, <clears throat> well, if, 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 the, if the hijackers couldn't fly the planes, then, then how did the this planes is, get where they were going? Yeah, this is really the question. This is really the question because <clears throat> two things, there are two things we know for sure. One, these four alleged hijackers could not fly those planes. And believe me, they could not. I mean, not only the guy I described, also the other three were basically uh, uh, piss-poor pilots, as they were described. Uh, no way they could have done the maneuvers that were observed by the Raiders, because these planes did not just drive like if they were driven by the autopilot all the way to the target. They did plunges and ascents that by the testimony of the very the very radar controllers were impossible, almost impossible. So whoever or whatever was driving those planes had the highest possible skills in order to get those machines to do what they did. So we know definitely for sure that those people not only not only they didn't pilot those planes, they were probably never even aboard those planes because of many reasons. Well, talk we about also, the, the the evidence uh, at the airports before you go. Uh, one on. second, one second. Let me let me let me complete this because yeah. this is a double. It's a double uh, thinking, a double reasoning. On one side, we know that those four guys could not, but we also know that no civil pilot, even with a gun at their head, would ever drive his own plane into the twin towers. Once you realize that you're doomed, once you realize that you're going to die anyway. What you do, you take the you take the plane into the into the ocean. I would, you know, if once you know that for you and for your passengers it's over, why kill also three, four, five, six thousand people in the tower? There's yeah. no reasons to do that. So we also know that no commercial pilot would ever drive a plane into the twin towers. So what are we left with? Remote controlled. It's the only possible solution. The planes that hit the towers, which are not necessarily the same planes that left the airports an hour before, must have been remote controlled and must have been driven to a target by an ILS kind of system, by a a, a beacon that was telling them exactly where to hit. That's the only way technically that you could. And also those planes, we know from the speeds that were recorded, that could have not been normal 767s because of the speed that they were, they hit that was recorded by the same radar tracks. So the only plausible answer to what happened to those planes is that the planes that left the airports on that morning are not the same ones that hit the towers. This is my conclusion anyway. Uh, and many other people came to this conclusion. I don't see any other explanation. Those four guys could not have flown them and no civilian pilot would ever fly a plane into the Twin Towers willingly, let alone unwillingly, of course. Well, a recent guest uh, uh, discussed the evidence for um, remote control piloting technology starting back before World War II. Oh, yeah. It's not in question that they had that. That technology is not in question. 
Yeah. Did they use it or not? That's the question. But it was available, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, but the hijackers, there's pictures of them in the airport, right? Oh, yeah. Hijackers. Uh, why, as I said, I don't even think they were ever on those planes. Just think that out of three airports from which the four initial flights took off, we do not have a single picture of any of the 19 hijackers uh, time-stamped September 11th that shows any of those 19 people at any of the three departing airports. How weird is that? But people say, no, well, I do remember a picture of a hijacker boarding a plane. It was at security controls. Yes, you do. But that was not one of the three airports where the planes were departing. That was Muhammad Atta and his fellow Alomari who took a, a ride the night before from uh, Boston to uh, Maine, I think. And they flew back with the connecting flight at 5 o'clock in the morning in order to catch the connection at Boston Airport to fly to the West Coast. So that picture that was shown is those two people boarding a 5 o'clock commuter plane from Maine back to Boston before they could get on the plane that left and that was uh, uh, allegedly uh, hijacked. And by the way, in that tight connection between the two flights, that's where they ooh, they lost their luggage. The luggage didn't make it on board of the plane. So this is how we could find this very neat luggage, luggage going around the, 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 the carousel after the attacks. And they open it and they find the Koran, of course, a list of the hijackers, of course, and all the instructions. And it was so easy. It was very easy for the FBI to figure out who it was. They were lucky, very lucky. <laughs> Yeah, and there's another picture, uh, which is uh, in real time at an airport. Uh, I mean, real, yes. real motion as yes. opposed to the typical stopgap. Uh, yes, that there's a video which is look which looks like an amateur video at Dallas Airport of the three of three of the four alleged hijackers of the flight of the Pentagon flight. But again, that video is very weird because a is it's a full motion picture. It's a full motion video. It's not a uh, you know, uh, the frame by frame. And usually cameras at airports don't record just a full movie because it takes up too much space. You only record one, one shot every second or one shot every 30, 30, every half a second at most, at best. So it's a continuous film. It's handheld and it's handheld. not time stamped. Oh. Yeah, you can tell it's handheld because oh. the, 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 the frame moves a little bit and it's not time stamped. So... <laughs> Again, this is something that was given because they must have said, we cannot have nothing. We must give them something, even if those people were not on the planes. We have to give them something. Oh, look, we have, for example, this video when they made we, we made them do a dry run in July, for example. We'd use that. That could have been very easily a shot taken at Dallas with these three people in a dry run done maybe a week before or a month before. And we also have the picture of Atai and Alomari at Portland, Maine. So we'll use those and we'll give an idea to the public that we have the images. But in fact, let me repeat this. September 11, there's cameras everywhere in the world, in every airport of the world already, except for the toilets. There's supposed to be cameras everywhere. And we do not have a single picture of any of the 19 hijackers time-stamped 
September 11 on any of the three departing airports that morning. That's on incredible. top, sorry, on top, we don't have any Arab Arabic names on the manifest list that was released in the afternoon by CNN and by Associated Press. And we have never heard a single recording of their voices from the black boxes. Also, oh. the only recording that we heard of them, again, it looks like it was done in purpose to give us something, but it was not actually. It was recorded on the ground, they tell us. People, uh, controllers on the ground, allegedly recorded an exchange going, uh, we have knife, we have going back to the airport, uh, remain calm, and all that, which sounds very much like a bad Hollywood script, by the way. <laughs> you, <laughs> but it's, it's so stupid to say that. You say things like that only in a movie. But anyway, okay. but that recording we have. But we should have the same recordings from the black boxes, the, the, the voice recorder, on the plane. Well, two of those, two of... Two of the four voice recorders of the four planes were never found, allegedly, because in the Twin Towers they found everything but not the, the voice recorders. And Pentagon and uh, Shanksville were so badly damaged, damn it, we, we could not hear any word. So we have no pictures of, of the guys at the airport, no names on the manifest list, and no recording, original recording from the black boxes of whatever happened in the in the in the in the in the cabin in the last half an hour before. They, they hit their targets. Why would I ever have to believe that they were on those planes? I have nothing <laughs> that shows me that they were. I, give me one thing. No, there's nothing. Only the list that the FBI released that tells us that they were on those planes. And yet most Americans believe this whole official narrative. I mean, it's incredible. It shows you how powerful the, the, the media uh, is. You didn't go into criticism of the media, uh, at least not yet, from what I've heard. Of you. I already said that they're all criminals because they didn't well, do the job. I mean, uh, in the film. Uh, oh, in the film. <laughs> the censorship of this story is incredible. No, it's it's obvious that that's that's a problem. Had the journalists done their job, again, you know, two, three, four days, so many questions would have emerged that the official story would have collapsed immediately. But then, oh. unfortunately, you cannot have that because if that collapses, what you have left is an inside job, and you can't have that. Even today, you can't have that. Today, there it's like the Kennedy assassination, in a way. The Kennedy assassination took about 40 years to figure out exactly who was there, who shot from where, how many shots, who sent them, who organized them. We know all that by now. Those who researched the case in depth, like I have, they know exactly all the connections, but for the general public, you cannot officially admit that Kennedy was killed by a joint operation of the mafia and the CIA. If you do research, you will find plenty of evidence for that, but officially in the institutional documentaries, you will never have that stated clearly. You cannot. It's just one line you cannot cross. You cannot tell people officially, look, our government betrayed our people. You cannot yep. do that because institutions would fall apart. Yep. And there is a logic for that. I mean, I understand why those kind of ugly truth must be protected at all costs. But for those who want to find out what the truth is, like 9-11, it's quite easily, actually. And here it is in part four, you go into the Pentagon. What happened there? Down well, light poles. Let's talk about those. Those are very controversial. 
the Pentagon has become a problem within the problem. At some point, uh, competing theories started to emerge on what actually happened or not happened at the Pentagon. I think it was a very painful moment for those of us who were trying to figure out uh, the truth on 9-11, because by finding groups fighting each other on with competing theories, you really take away the burden from those who did it, and you put the burden on us. We now we have to, if I maintain that it was a missile, somebody else says it was a flyover. Another person says it was a plane, but it wasn't a, a, a 757. Whatever. Suppose we have three theories. If we start bickering among each other, then the burden comes on any of us to prove our point at the expense of the other. With great relief from those who defend the official version who are suddenly relieved from the burden of answering the question. Yeah. This is why in my film, I stop short of giving any possible answer. All I say is, all I do is, Try to prove the reasons why it could not have been a 757. And I stop there. Because the moment I prove that this could not have been a 757, the burden to answer what it was, it's on the government, ah. not on us. So this is why I, I you know, I remember those years. They were not they were not nice moments for me when I start seeing, and each group has their own reasons. So it's not like you can say, oh, this guy's an idiot and this guy's stupid. No, each each had their own valid reasons. But the moment these this theories start to clash with each other and once become exclusive of the other, which they have to at some point, because you cannot have both a flyover and a hit, direct hit, of course. It's either yeah. or. Then the fight is within our own court. And this is not what we want. We, we we need to stop where we prove that the official... It's like with, with the Twin Towers and the termite story and the mini nukes and the direct uh, energy thing that, you know, it was the same thing. You've been through that, of course. I mean, oh, yeah. Okay. Now, this should not happen. The, the, the point is, those towers cannot collapse in 9.7 seconds in the way they did because of ABC laws of physics. End of story. Now, please explain what did you use, whatever you did, because whatever you told us is not true. This is where I think our job should stop. And by becoming, you know, by letting the competing theorists gain ground, we remove the burden of, of answering the truth from the government. And that was a big mistake. Okay. I, I, I was well, well pointed out. But what did you show about the downed light poles? The which? How did the light poles get downed? They're down after the after the plane has gone by. Do we know they were down before the plane came by? We don't know that. They could have taken been taken down minutes before, the night before. I don't know. Okay. You, you don't need to explain that because if you start using any of those arguments to prove or disprove one of the theories, you get entangled in what I said before. You're right. All I know is that had the plane been as wide as it takes for a plane to actually take down those light poles at that actual distance, which I don't remember now in meters, but it was a precise distance calculated. So if you have those light poles and you consider them taken down by the plane, 
the wingspan must be of X meters. Yeah. That wingspan projected onto the facade, it doesn't fit. And if it don't fit, you must acquit, like you know, somebody famous said. So that's my point. It doesn't matter who and what took down the poles. All I know is that had the plane been that wide, could not fit in that hole. So you tell me either how you took down the poles or what hit the Pentagon. Okay. And we'll get more into that from uh, each of the three competing theories on Saturday, March 19th, by right. the way, where uh, at 9-11-Con, uh, our first monthly conference, uh, we will go right into the Pentagon with um, David Chandler, Barbara Honiger, and Craig McKee. Um, but um, what are your conclusions about the damage at the Pentagon? My conviction, my my what I believe it happened. I'm yeah. I am brought to believe that these guys would not hurl a real plane onto their own walls. Uh-huh. It's not smart. <laughs> Whether it comes low or where it comes from high. I see the 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 entry hole and especially the exit hole as explosion holes more than um more than plane damage uh-huh. but it could be a combination of things it could be that there was a, a, a pre-prepared explosion from inside and some kind of flying thing that made it look like it was a plane so any combination could be possible uh i don't have an answer on the, i have there's two things i don't have an answer on 9-11 and it really bothers me because I'm used to use logic and to exclude things, and I like to have my own conclusion, whether it's correct or not, but I like to have my own. There's two things I cannot come to a definite conclusion on 9-11. One is what actually hit the Pentagon, and one is what happened in in Shanksville. Because there again, I know that that there was no plane in that hole, but to piece together all the little pieces of information that I found and come up with an actual solution. I actually have come up with one, but it's a little complicated. We don't won't get into this now. Uh, but it's kind of stilted. It's not. It's not linear. Uh, for example, I know from uh, Nora the recordings I've heard. I played. I spent at least four weeks in back in 2013 when I was making the film, listening to each and single Nora tape. During the attacks, so from from nine o three until ten ten, every single station had their own recording, and all those tapes are published. I synchronized them all in time. It, I mean, remember the work was was incredibly hard, but I did it, and I had actually acted a software that synchronized all the all the conversations between air controllers. At some point, I remember somebody saying. Then what happened to this United 93? And somebody else says, well, it went down, of course. They must have taken it down near, um, what's the name of the place where the president goes? Camp David? Near Camp David. They actually say that. They say they took it down near Camp David in one of the conversations. But I could not piece, I could not glue that piece of information together with the rest to be able to give a, a logical answer to what happened. So also for for Shanksville, I stopped where I can stop, which is 
there is no United 93 playing in there. Eight feet buried underground. Please don't tell me that. And after that, it's up to you to explain what happened. We don't have all the information and all the elements. And with what we have, we can only go so far. Ah, very helpful. And hopefully we'll learn more from a, a, a whole body of, of experts uh, who have different angles, uh, different pieces, uh, different parts of the elephant that they have been uh, looking at. Um, it, it is disturbing. Uh, I mean, we, the evidence that, that, that I've begun to look at, I've been so narrowly focused on the World Trade Center that um, uh, I... Yeah, you actually expect... Can I ask you a question, Richard? Oh, uh, we don't allow that. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, because as I remember, when we were working together at, and when I was working on the film and you were helping me with that, you were only focusing on um, on uh, on the towers, on, on, on the World Trade Center, so to speak, so the three buildings. What happened... In, with you, that you started looking at other things too. You got unleashed. I got fired. Okay, you got unleashed. That was a nice yeah. way to put it. Okay, you got unleashed. Okay. Yeah, and I was talking about uh, the disease going around and my personal emotional reaction to it, and the uh, and the response to it uh, from uh, authorities, which was draconian and dangerous, uh, and. And so um, this actually caused Spike Lee to uh, withdraw the half-hour segment that he was going to put on HBO, which was substantially myself bringing the evidence to him about the World Trade Center. But um, he's on the other side of the uh, coin on the on the, uh, the disease issue. So... Oh. He's trying to get everybody vaccinated, you know, the, the black people in, in, in New York because their racial discrimination has caused uh, them to be an underrepresentative population in terms of getting. So anyway, uh, he he felt undermined, I'm sure, by my comments, but he was also under great pressure as well, bringing the, our information. Uh, it was being called a conspiracy theorist and giving the 9-11 Truth Movement the greatest forum they've ever had, uh, which would have been great because there are millions of people who would have seen this information. That's exactly and, what we said before. You can't have that. At, at, at the level of institutional documentaries, you cannot have the truth. It's as simple as that. Once they saw that your half an hour was, would have convinced too many people, they had to stop it. It's as simple as that. Yeah. So our PR consultant... Uh, convinced our board uh, who unwittingly agreed with them uh, to uh, uh, that this was a PR uh, crisis in, the, in, in our organization. And of course it wasn't and it wouldn't be, but uh, nevertheless uh, uh, more than half of our board agreed with that. So uh, here I am on my own. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Uh, yes, yes. I suspected that would have been the turning point, but thanks for confirming it, yeah. Yeah, you bet. Speaking of the Twin Towers, um, you've done an incredible job exposing the evidence here, and um, uh, what, what jumps out in, in your mind as the most challenging um, uh, uh, 
opportunity, uh, well, the, the, the opportunity you had to take to convince people? Uh, usually, if, if you're asking me, if I had one argument at a dinner, say, and we talk 9-11, if I had a one argument to choose, I would choose the free fall argument. Because to anybody who has a scientific background, that does make a lot of sense. You, you, you know, I give the example of a piano. I, say, I always start the conversation by saying, imagine that a piano is thrown out of a window from the last floor of the tower at the same tower that at the same time that the tower begins to collapse what reaches the ground first and everybody says the piano and i said nope they reach at the same time whoa how is that possible and that's how you do it but i mean that's how i do it but uh there are many there are many again as i said before the problem with any level is psychological it's such a big step to have to admit that you don't have a father anymore because we like to, we grow up, we like to think that our government takes care of us, protects us, and does everything possible for us to have a better life. And having to accept that, no, we don't have a father, or we don't have a good father anyway. We might have a, a father, a father, but it's pretty bad. Or he, does, he minds his own business more than ours. It's a very, very big step. And most people cannot afford that. And also, I must say, this sentiment must be respected. Uh, the 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 mechanisms mechanism of denial that uh, gets triggered in many people when you present them with the evidence of 9/11 must be respected. I I in the beginning I would force I would try to force anybody into a corner until I would get them to admit that there is a problem there. I've learned not to do that so much because I think that each is in a different place in terms of developing our own consciousness. And for some people are ready to accept an idea like this, some are not. And those who are not, I say, you know, look, I gave you what I, what I thought it was useful for you, do whatever you want with it, or here's my film, or watch my film, which they'll never do anyway, because they know that once they watch it, they can't unwatch it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but basically I, I, I stopped there. I, I tried to respect the sentiment because I, I understand it's very important for people's psychological balance. That, no, that, it, it, it really answer. is. And we've been working 15 years on this. And um, I, you know, we've grown from zero or one architect and engineer up to 3,500, but it is a small representation of the overall numbers of architects and engineers and only maybe 20% of the population has been exposed to this information, maybe 50, but only 20% would readily say, I imagine, that, um, that there are serious questions about the official story. Um, how, how do you feel personally about having put forth so much effort uh, for what some might say is so little gain? Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't do I don't talk 9/11 anymore, because I have put in so much effort in the first 12 years of my work on it. Let's say from 2002 to 2013 when I did this last film. That after that, I feel I've done everything I could have done for to make elements available to people to to find out the truth if they want. So I'm satisfied with that. 
Okay. If anybody asks me and is genuinely interested in finding out what happened, I think I can provide them with a good tool to find out. But again, if they're not interested, you know, it's life. What, what can you do? Each person has their own path of evolution. You cannot push them faster than they, they're ready to go. And so I, I've learned to accept that. I'm doing the same now with the, with the COVID situation. Oh, to, to many of us, it's very obvious what's going on, but we are a minority. I would say 20% maybe of Italy is what I call awakened to the problem, to the situation. They realize exactly what's going on, but 80% is not. And when you found, when you find, when I find myself talking with some of the 80%, I just give them a little hint of a possibility of a discussion. If they don't pick it up, if I see they reject it, and they go, oh, you're just a Novax, uh, you know, you know, you're already a conspiracy theorist, or you're a flat earther, or whatever. I go, sure, you know, <laughs> yeah, they use that a lot here. I don't know in America, but flat Earth here is very, very uh, expendable now. They use it a lot, and uh, so I go, sure, okay, you know, in case you want information, I have. You do what you want with it, and but when when they ask me why I don't want to vaccinate, then the story changes. Okay. So, so you, you, you've lowered your expectations of the general population. You don't anticipate that we're going to have a, a breakthrough. Your personal um, expectation is... Um, Worldwide or Italy? Well, let's talk Italy. Okay. I, actually, it's not very different. I think the percentages <laughs> are very similar. No, I, I just realized the percentages are very similar in, in at least the Western world, let's say Europe, uh, Germany, Spain, France, England, and the U.S., uh, Canada, Australia is a little different. But in general, I think that it's going to take a while. There's been a tide. A tide came up with strong, strong, strong support for vaccine. You know, the fear was so much, and the idea that vaccine would be the only solution was so strong in the beginning that everybody really waited for the vaccine. So they, everybody ran towards vaccinations in, you know, with open arms. Uh, not everybody, everybody. Good, the majority, let's say 50, 60%. The remaining was pushed to, make, to, to, to accept it because they're cutting your, 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 your social rights here. So you have to, if you want to go to work, you have to have vaccinations, basically. So it's become a blackmail. But for that second part, second portion, it's very easy to come back. So the tide has, came up very fast, but it will also go back. We will also recede very fast because it's obvious to them they were forced into it. So I presume that in a couple of months from now, when they will have to finally declare that this, at least this particular pandemic is over and we're moving into endemic phase of the, of, of, of the problem, I would say we remain with 50-50. 50% convinced that they did the right thing mm. and 20 who never did it to begin with. And the 30% in between, they will slowly realize that they were coerced into something that was wrong. And with 50% only of the population convinced that, that the narrative was valid, I would hope that it's going to be hard to make another one next year or two years from now. Right. Because I think I think the real problem is not this pandemic anymore. This is 
disintegrating in a way or another as a matter of months. But they didn't make a new one because now they like the toy very much. They found this great, beautiful toy that's called fear, and it works. (laughs) And you can really obtain whatever they want. So the temptation to do another one is probably very strong. So I hope that enough people will understand the lie that was told to them in this one before they come with the next one. That's really my my, my hope. And and you do you imagine that they will start to re-examine other scenarios like 9-11 uh, when the, that 50% wake up to um, that they were lied to by Big Pharma? Well, look, for example, in the States, I've been following, not very closely, but I've been following what's happening with Fauci. I mean, Fauci is on the verge of, of on the verge of, of uh, going to trial for lying under oath, if I understand correctly. He basically denied what has become public knowledge now that his NIH, through the uh, Eco Alliance, financed the experiments that eventually led to the birth of the of this virus. So, if this becomes public. And I, I see a, a strong pushback from the Washington Post and the New York Times. I see a strong pushback on this. They don't want this to become public knowledge. But I see, for example, Rand Paul and other, other senators from the Republican Party who are pushing hard. Ted Cruz, I think, is pushing very hard for this. If this becomes public knowledge and the entire world realizes that what we have been, the nightmare we have been going through in the last two years, originated into ex- from experiments that were financed, if not conducted by the United States, it's going to be much harder for them to just drop another one on us. Mm-hmm. So I count on, 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 on these people who make all possible efforts to at least bring out the, the origins of this virus, which is clearly, for those who have studied the, the issue, is clearly originated in a lab in, in intentionally. Whether it was disseminated intentionally, we don't know. But it was clearly man-made. And that should not happen again. It's too dangerous, again, to be played again. So that consciousness, if that consciousness caught on and people realize that, you know, we got to stop these crazy people because they can do it again, then we might see a little brighter future. If this doesn't happen and most of the population keeps believing that it was the, 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 the bat that dropped it in the wrong place, now we're we're bound for another bad surprise, I think. Right, but there is some interplay uh, with nine eleven. Um, I'm thinking that people are becoming more open minded that their government can and does lie to them actually on a routine basis. Um, that that um, the environment for the acceptance of nine eleven is increasingly um, uh, open. So I'm, I, I, that's one of the things that keeps me moving forward uh, 20 years after 9-11. Uh, we thought, you know, oh, the 20-year anniversary, there'll be so much attention on 9-11 truth, and there might have been more. There would have been more, uh, most likely, with Spike Lee's um, Epicenter series, which included a half-hour section. Um but unfortunately, that didn't happen, and I bear uh, a degree of responsibility for that. And uh, that's a, a hard uh, cross to bear because... Uh, Richard, I, I think you should blame yourself. 
they would they use that excuse. They would have used another one. Uh, what what I said before, I, I'm con- totally convinced of that. That truth simply cannot come out in the open as it was bound to with Spike Lee's documentary. It cannot. So one way or another, they would have stopped it. Even the night before, somebody would have blown up the TV station so the tape suddenly is gone. I mean, whatever. It doesn't matter. So they used you as a scapegoat for that, and you had to pay the price. But had it not been you, it would have been something else. Spike Lee would have been convinced anyway to remove that. I mean, just think of a famous, famous, famous film director who has his own piece of work finished. And they say, oh, yeah, it's all good, except, you know, that half an hour needs to go. Anybody would say, excuse me? I'm Spike Lee. I'm a, I don't know if he won Oscars or what, but it's, you know, <laughs> he's definitely got a reputation in his field. So you can't just tell him to remove half an hour or something. But they did. So they would have gotten to him anyway, one way or another. So you happen to be in the middle of it, and you happen to be the scapegoat. But I don't think you should carry the, the cross for this, really. But well, it happened I, anyway. I so much appreciate that. Ego, ego, uh, te absolvo, nomine patris. You know, like like the priest does, that gives the absolution. Well, but it happened I, anyway. I so much appreciate that. Ego, ego, te absolvo, nomine patris. You know, like like the priest. Oh shoot! Hang on one second. Okay, go ahead. I'm fine. I'm fine. We're synced again. Yeah, I was. Um, I was. I was. I'm seeing that we have some questions for you, okay. and I would like you to give you an opportunity to answer them. You got a couple of minutes. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Go read them to me because I can't. All right then. I don't want to be the one who picks them. Yeah. Don't no. Don't be looking at that. Um, okay. Did Massimo ever collaborate with Ferdinand and Passamato? Yes. Uh, we started to collaborate. He actually, I had to actually, it's a bad word, but I had to school him on on, on uh, Building 7 because he had no idea what happened. He was talking oh. about, a, he was talking about a, a, a semantic, how do you say, not not the steel structure. The way that we do uh, high skyscrapers in Europe is cement with with iron inside. What do you call it? A reinforced concrete. Reinforced concrete. He thought it was a reinforced concrete building. Oh, so I had to like stop, stop, stop. Don't you know? He was going out on television talking about how can a reinforced concrete building collapse mm-hmm. like that. So I had to, you know, <laughs> you're good with the law, but I had to give him a little schooling of that. But anyway, part, besides yeah. that. That that part, uh, he was going to take the the whole thing to the European Court. I think at some point, I think he even started the operation. I don't know how it went, but then he passed away, and uh, nothing happened of that. But I did get to meet him, and he was a wonderful person. Yes, yes, a, a real truth teller. Um, Anthony says, uh, "How would Mister M- uh, Massimo, <laughs> Mister Massimo, uh, respond to those who would say it couldn't be deceit?" Because a plan of that scale couldn't be kept secret. Oh. Uh, That's one of the arguments that the debunkers used in every major uh, discussion on every major alleged conspiracy that happened. 
they will tell you with the Kennedy assassination, how is it possible? So many people would have been involved that you cannot go into the moon. I also made a, a film where I show my serious doubts about the fact that NASA actually went to the moon. I've been a photographer in the early part of my life, and I know, and believe me when I say I know, I mean I know that those pictures are taken in the studio with, with uh, artificial lights. And every photographer I interviewed confirmed that. But, you know, that, I, don't, I don't mean to, to make the point here, but even for that, they say, oh, how could NASA have faked the, 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 the trips to the moon? So many people would have to be involved. This is an argument that is effective at stomach level, emotionally. You yeah. go, oh, yeah, well, how can you have? No, the, 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 the truth is you don't have to inform so many people. The guys at NASA that you see waving when they see the lamb landing on the big screen, on the big screen, they're the actual, the first ones to be deceived. They believe they're going to the moon. Everybody's doing their own little thing with their own little monsters covering everything. Remotely, somebody's giving, feeding them the lie. They're the first witnesses to the lie and the first who make the people believe that we actually went to the moon because they all jump and, and scream and we went to the moon. It's not necessary. It's proven with only 50 or 100 people at the most would need to know about the scam. All the rest, the 40,000 or 400,000 people involved don't need to know about that. The same is for 9-11. 9-11, when you hear the, the answer, the interview in, in my film of a captain who says, I only had four planes. How am I going to defend the entire northern sector, northeastern sector with four planes only? He's genuine. He's trying yeah. to defend this country. Yeah. He has been duped. He means somebody else is tricking him. He is part of those who try to defend. It's like when you say the FBI is corrupt or the CIA is corrupt. No, 99% of those people are hardworking, honest people who really work for their nation. Only takes is 1% to deceive them on the top that feeds them the wrong information. And then tries to manage what happens, you know, do damage control of what happens. Think, for example, of the case of uh, what was the name of that lady, the, the Minneapolis agent who denounced Masawi. Uh, she even won Person of the Year, Time Cover, Time the Time Person of the Year. I don't remember her name. She was an FBI agent, an honest oh, mid Colleen level. Rowley. Colleen Rowley, thank you. Uh, that exa- that's exactly the example that you need. She saw something strange, something fishy about this school where this guy comes in and only says, I want to learn only to fly a plane, but I don't need to learn how to land or to, or to take off. She goes to her superiors. She sends letters to Washington, to the bureau, to the Central Bureau, and, and says, look, something is fishy here. Okay, don't worry, we'll take care of that. And she shut off completely. Only from the top up, you need to know what's going on. Colleen Rowley will never know only until later when she she understands what happened. But at the moment, she does not know. So it's not like the whole FBI is in it for the job. So the answer is, how many people do you really need to have at the top for everything to happen without everyone else knowing? That's really the kind of question you should ask yourself. 
and you can keep most of them quiet because Absolutely. Uh, they sign agreements to not tell and they can get prosecuted. Also, also. there are a lot of people who know but cannot talk. So if you put all that together, your numbers will, will match at the end of the day. Yeah, and a lot of people went to jail who did talk. Um, wow. there's, there's examples of that. But let's go to uh, uh, David, who says, uh, did American Airlines Flight 77 have working pay phones or decommissioned pay phones? Where are Ted Olson's phone records that would have indicated how his wife called him? Do we know how his wife, Barbara, called him? Okay, I'm not fresh on that. I don't know, a bit rusty on that. Uh, if I remember correctly, the entire Barbara Olson phone call was contradicted by her husband himself. Yes. First he told, yeah, first he told one story, then he told another story. Now, I don't remember which came oh, first, but I do, it was clear. I watched it last night. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> he... he he said uh, they were cell phone calls. Then he said, oh, no, because cell phones don't work. Oh, yeah. 30, Somebody feet. told you, him, look, there's no cell phones that don't you work. Proved that, uh, the Japanese experiment where they took cell phones up at 8,000 feet, they stopped working. And, yeah. uh, and then up to, of course, above that, they stopped working. Yeah. The important research on the cell phone calls, because most of the phone calls were allegedly made for United from United 93, which is the fourth flight, the Shanksville. And on that, I remember I reconstructed the whole flight path with all the altitudes and any given time. And when the phone call was made, you could tell that this phone call was made, let's say, at, at 9.46. And at 9.46, the plane was at 14,000 feet, which would have been impossible to connect. So cross that out. Next, next, next. And there are many, 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 many. And only at the end, I think you're only left with two phone calls that are possibly feasible because they are in the very latest part of the flight where the fl the plane is low enough. But again, but the problem with the phone calls is not only the height, it's also the speed at which a plane travels. Because mm -hmm. the, the the phone system, the grid works that when you, when you're driving on a car, for example. You, you, you're leaving one, one cell and getting to the next. The two towers are connected, and there's an exchange process between, if you're connected to Tower 1 and you're traveling with your car, at some point you're crossing into the territory of Tower 2. Tower 1 and 2 ex do something that's called a, a handshake. They uh -huh. connect, and they pass you over to the next tower, so now you're under control of Tower 2. But at the, at the speed a car travels, you have enough time for the towers to do this. At the speed a plane travels, these towers don't can't keep up with you changing. So it's not only the height of the flight that's a problem, it's also the speed of the plane that will move you from one tower to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, with not enough time for even those towers to handshake and 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 transfer the phone call to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. So your phone call will drop, even if the altitude were possible, which is not, your phone call will drop because of the speed of the plane. And so if the cell phone calls weren't made in the plane, uh, uh, the question, of course, is where might they have been made from? From the ground somewhere where the planes have landed. And that's where all the possibilities open up. But we know that they were made because the relatives received them. And I really studied those interviews with the relatives who describe who describe the phone calls, and I don't think they could ever be good enough actors uh -huh. or would they even want to be pretending. So 
I am convinced that those phones did happen. And since they could not happen from the air, they must have happened from the ground somewhere. And so they weren't um, voice morphing. I'm never. No, I've, I was never a fan of the voice of the voice morphing uh, theory. I know it was popular at some point, but I think it's much easier to just point a gun to someone's head and says, "We're going to save your life, but you have to say this and this and this and that," and and you just do. Remember the CC Lyles call. CC uh, Lyles calls her boyfriend. The boyfriend does not pick up the phone. She leaves a message in the answer machine, and it goes pretty much like. Honey, I love you. We've been hijacked. Uh, there's three people with bandanas, whatever, whatever. I hope to see you again. I love you. Goodbye. And then after, before she hangs up, you hear she whispers, it's a frame. And that sentence is cut off from most documentaries on uh, History Channel, Discovery. You will never have that clip. But in the original recording, that's part of the uh, Masawi trial uh, evidence uh-huh. the phone call is complete and he has that it's a frame so she's probably being forced to do that and somehow before she hangs up she managed to send this message saying it's a frame and she hangs up the phone and it's pretty clear i listened to that last night also and, and everybody you can watch this whole five-hour documentary uh on free on youtube and that's the way it's been from the beginning from uh massimo mizuko he wants everybody to have and to share this information. But regarding that, uh, I did hear, it's clear, it's a frame. Let me just say something about this, uh, Richard, because then I forget. The film is available on on YouTube, has been since seven years now. If anybody wants the the DVDs, actually, to want to have the DVDs, you can uh, write to me and I will arrange for you to ship, have them shipped to you in the States. Can I spell my email very quickly for anybody? It's redazuko, is one word, redazuko at gmail.com. Redazuko spells R-E-D-A-Z-Z-U-C-C-O. Slow that down now. R-E-D-A-Z-Z-U-C-C-O dot, sorry, at gmail.com. So Redazuko, that's my email. If anybody wants a copy of the DVD, we have some in the States sitting with a friend and um, just write to me and we'll figure out a way. Now Thank it's you. a frame. It is not um, is not a term that I would have used in that circumstance, but maybe others would. And I wanted to ask you if you've checked around um, and do a frame up. I am. A, I understand a frame up is um, when somebody gets framed they for doing something they didn't actually do, uh, but it's a frame. Uh, do you have any more clarity on that phrase? Well, I interpret that as is a setup, uh-huh. but uh, a frame is a setup. If you have been framed, you have been set up. But again, think that we're not in a situation where, where she can actually make her best choice of words, maybe. Yeah. I mean, she might have been a little tense in that situation. And, <laughs> and, and you can really ask yourself, why didn't she use a more proper word? Uh, like, like it's a scam or it's, just, or it's a lie, whatever. I mean, you know, it's you, you can't really ask that question in that situation. No. Uh, what is important is that she has the need to whisper something after the official message ends. The official message is, we've been hijacked. Uh, there's three people in this. I love you. I hope to see you soon. Bye. 
What's important is that she needs to, she feels the need to add something with a low tone of voice so not to be heard from people around before she hangs up. So I wouldn't concentrate so much on the actual meaning of the word, the fact that she has this need to communicate something that is obviously not what's going on. Okay. Um, Ray says, uh, there are two recordings of the perpetrator's voices on the day of 9-11. Yes, the first there are. We have some planes. The second says we have a bomb on board. Did the, did the four planes have bombs on board? Yeah, like I said before, there are these two recordings, but they were recorded, strangely enough, from, they tell us, they were recorded from the air controllers on the ground, not from the voice recorder of the plane itself. So again, anybody could be transmitting on that frequency at that given time and says, we have some planes, we will go back to the airport and, and fake an Arabic accent, if you, unless you have someone who speaks Arabic, you know. So that message could have come from anywhere. The only way to prove that this was actually originated in the plane is if we heard the voice recorder. Imagine that in the last half an hour of each flight, according to the official version, there must have been some mayhem inside the, 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 the cockpit. I mean, these people storm in, they kill, they cut the throat, they take out the captain. You know, a five foot two Arab guy takes out a six foot nine uh, captain from uh, America 77. So it must have been at least a struggle. So we must have some recording of that half an, half an hour. Unfortunately, we have not. As I said, of the four, two voice recorders, four, four black boxes together for the two twin towers, we have not seen one of the four. And for the Pentagon, we were told that it was damaged. The voice recorder was damaged enough that it wasn't usable. For the Shanksville one, which is the one I really would like to hear, we're told that it was recovered. It was something like eight feet under the ground. Now, just imagine this piece of robust metal being sunk into the ground and, and recovered because the, the hole in Shanksville is completely closed. They tell us that the plane is underneath. But the hole is not open. It's not an open hole. It's closed. So somehow that plane has penetrated the hard soil and has disappeared under. This is what the FBI tells us, which is a joke in itself. But they tell us we cannot reproduce the the actual sound of the of the voice recorder because the families would be too upset. We'll only give you a transcript. And if you read the transcript, I think it's in the film also. If you read the transcript. Believe me, you will laugh from the beginning to the end because it's, as I said, worse than a B-movie script. It's <laughs> uh, everything that you would expect a terrorist to say in that situation and nothing that sounds like realistic. Nothing. Absolutely. Wow. So are you saying it's done? Yes. I say we just finish it. Oh, you really want to finish it? Yes, let's finish it. I mean, this dialogue itself is for, I'm a screenwriter, okay? Believe me, you can tell when something has been written artificially and when something is real. That wow. dialogue is not real. And the fact that we're not, we cannot hear the actual original voices means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> okay. So Anthony says, <clears throat> how do the hijackers <clears throat> fit into the story if it was an inside job? 
How do they fit? <clears throat> Why? How do they fit into the story? What do you mean? What part did they have? Let's let's uh, read it that way. Uh, it, it's an inside job. Oh, if it's an inside job, and they hire, they must have hired and set up the hijackers. Um, yeah. Do we know how that might have happened? Well, you set them up saying we're going to do. You want to make them do things so that they leave a trail behind that then you can use to prove that they were actually the culprits. So you send them to uh, you send them to train uh, to fly, for example, to to a flight school. You do send them. You tell them whatever. You say to, we're going to do an operation on. You know, in a year from now, you're going to be flying a Concorde and whatever. You tell them whatever story, so they actually, you pay them and you make them do what you need them to do for them to leave traces that can later be used to prove that they were actually those responsible. Well, apparently eight of them were still alive after 9-11. That part, yeah, that part of who's alive and who's not is very confusing. I've never followed that trail because... Uh, the, the bunkers had some valid, I'm not saying truth, true, but valid answers in terms of they could have been uh, double. I mean, all these names, they're all pretty much the same. The, the, it's very hard to to tell if this is a double, if a double identity, Some somebody had a passport stolen. Obviously, they had to build this 19 identities somehow. So you have to start from real people somewhere. Some of them they may be composite pictures of people who never existed. I mean, you can take a chin from one person and and, and the eyes from another person, and and give it an Arabic name, and nobody has seen him before. But then again, you need some of them to have been present in places so that people can remember them. So that will, this some... will, yeah, this will this will uh, give uh, credibility to the story. If, for yeah. example, we say, where the hell did they learn how to fly? And we have no schools, flight schools where they attended, then suddenly this is a problem. If somebody comes out and says, look, this instructor remembers Atta trying to learn how to fly a year ago. Oh, then it all per makes perfect sense. It's called planting, planting the evidence. Well, that uh, theory is uh, supported by the testimony of Michael Springman in Saudi Arabia, who worked for the State Department, uh, who was involved in um, denying uh, uh, passport requests from uh, Saudi Arabians. And uh, lo and behold, he was saying that they, uh, that somebody above him was allowing these seedy characters in, through right. his uh, gaze. Look, it's the same story with, with any patsy. The, the stories, the, the, the dynamics are always the same. You have to get them involved into into it. for example one big question i could never answer is why was actually oswald in the in the uh, texas book depository that day because he was there so if he's a patsy how do we place him there 6 months before the kennedy uh, parade comes by so that he can actually be in a place where we we can later say he he was there it was him so the mechanism, the, the mechanism by which you set up a patsy is very complicated. And it, it takes a lot of thinking and a lot of planning. 
and it's it's very intricate, very very difficult to figure out. Uh, but again, it all it's always obvious when a patsy has been set up, because suddenly in the in the official story you find a hole that doesn't stand, and then you realize that all the rest is a setup. For example, I could you know I could buy that the people um, uh, were trying to learn how to fly, but not a Cessna single engine if you're going to hijack a 757 yeah. it takes a to- yeah. it's a totally i mean come on it's like me and you trying to learn a go-kart because we want to hijack a, a ferrari at, at daytona it's the same <laughs> thing it's just, you're gonna okay. crash at the first now, david david says uh why no squawking 7500 hijack code were, were the pilots uh trained to give up the controls to the hijackers or was uh as was claimed by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Why not? Why was there no squawking? Yes, because there was never a hijack, probably. Well, probably they know how to do that, right? They they flip up the uh, the, the the top and they they just type in seventy five hundred, right? Is that how it works? I don't know how it works, but I I remember this comment, this this thing that there was no squawking, there was no distress signal that usually pilots use for hijacking. I know that there wasn't any of that. And there was a question about that. My answer is that they were never hijacked. They were probably even remotely hijacked. And at the same time, their communications were taken away. A, a different plane, a drone was replaced, replaced their own. And that original plane was made to land into a base, a military base, but probably not with the pilots piloting anymore. So if they were unable to pilot the plane, they probably weren't also able to communicate. It's my wow. guess. I really have no no answer for that. But I do remember there was an issue with why there was no quacking. It's actually a good point. I don't have an answer for that. Okay. Um, and uh, another gentleman asks about the dancing Israelis. Do you know anything about them? Yeah. There were five dancing Israelis arrested, arrested, and then somehow uh, unexplicably let out of the country without too many questions. That is an indication to many that uh, Israeli agents were involved. I have a problem. I mean, I have too much respect for the Israeli intelligence to think that they would actually start jumping in the middle of the street. <laughs> It because, does seem strange. Yeah. yeah, I don't see a Mossad agent doing that, to be honest. But these very same people did give a TV interview in Israel and admitted that they were part of the Mossad and that they were there to document the event. So, how, oh, what well, that part I don't know. That part I don't, I, I, I'm not aware of. Uh, more in general about the the, the so-called Jewish involvement in in the in the in the events. I am. I have some personal convictions. There are no elements of proof, except one, and that to me is very interesting. Um, while it was obviously a lie that no Jewish people died in the Twin Towers collapses, which is was widely circulated but widely untrue. A lot of Jewish people died in the collapses of the Twin Towers. All you need to do is look at the list of the last names. There's one issue that remains unresolved to me. Two workers from a company called Odigo, 
a telecommunication company based in Tel Aviv, gave an interview to El Haaretz, Tel Aviv mag- uh, newspaper, on September 16th, so five days after the attacks, and said, we were warned not to go to work that morning. Two of them. So while it's not true that no Jew went to work on that day, these two gave an interview to El Haaretz. It's still available. If you look up El Haaretz, Odigo, O-D-I-G-O, and September 16th, I'm sure you can find the article. And these two people say, we were told not to go to work that day. So somebody somewhere knew this was going to happen, and it doesn't sound like it would have been Islamic people uh, warning Israelis not to go. But it's the only piece of evidence that really I found that is solid in a way. And uh, to me, it really doesn't matter if there was any involvement by Mossad and to which degree. We're talking American territory, American authorities, American institutions. It doesn't matter to me if you let somebody else, somebody from from a foreign country help you or not. You, American, the military, the Secret Service, those who are supposed to protect the country have to answer for what happened, not those who may have helped you. So I never made a big issue. I I don't deny that there is a possibility that they were helped by, by Mossad, but it's not the point. The point is this happened in America under their watch, under their control, under their government, in under American institutions and military. They have to answer for that. Okay, excellent point. Xander says, a question for Ms. Massimo. Would uh, Luogo Commune be willing to review information on the 2017 Las Vegas shooting that is not widely known but is irreconcilable with the official story. Please, uh, let's connect. I can connect you with Xander. Okay. Um, the answer is no. I've, I've been, aw- I am aware that there are problems with that story. When you say Logo Comune, which is my website, you're talking to it. That's me. I mean, it's one person. Uh, <laughs> I don't have a, a team of people whom I can say, okay, you take care of this, you cover that, you let me know this about it. I do everything by myself. So it's one of the things that I would have certainly liked to look into it more in in depth, but is not important enough for the Italian audience for me to delve into that. And again, I have to make priorities. I mean, I would like to research every possible mystery on earth. That's my nature. But I have to, you know, I only have the time that I have and I only have the energy that I have, including the fact that it's almost midnight for me and I'm not even sure I'm giving you straight answers anymore. But <laughs> You're doing great. Um, I'm going to let you go after this last question uh, from Pat. So we're going to decipher this together. Is there more than one why was it done reasons like wars started for Iraqi oil pipelines secretly examined by Cheney and oil execs during his first 30 days as VP? War is a racket. In quotes, of course, that's Smedley Butler, uh, his book, uh, on full display. The question is, was this more than one converging reason for doing 9-11? You could read it like that. Okay. If that's the question, my answer is yes, absolutely. I see a, a big conversion of local interest and 
national interest. Um, you need an excuse to go to Afghanistan for reasons that we know. We're not going to discuss them now. One of them is opium. Another one is the pipelines. The third one is the geopolitical control of that part of the world. But of course, you don't have an excuse to go. You can't just take and go. You need a good reason to go. So at the national level, you need something like 9-11 and somebody who you can blame, Osama bin Laden in this case, so you'll have an excuse to go. At the same time, what are you going to use as a pretext to go there? What kind of attack? And that's where the local problem of the Twin Towers comes into place. Twin Towers, A, are a symbol, so you can easily say they wanted to attack our symbol of wealth and democracy and all that. But they were also created a major, major, major problem for the Port Authority for New York because of the amount of asbestos that they, they contained, the cost that they represented in being maintained, extremely costly to warm up in winter, extremely costly to cool off, to, to keep cool in, 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 in summer. And because of a logistic traffic situation that they created, there was a major problem for Southern Manhattan this big block of four or six blocks, this big chunk that taxis would take an hour just to go around the, the, the six blocks of the, what was the World Trade Center once. If you combine all these problems and you have somebody in an office say, hmm, what do we do in order to have a good excuse? Somebody says, you know what, guys? I need somebody to take down these towers. Could we arrange something that works for both of us? Because we have these local problems here. They're very big. This tower's cost, impossible. there are laws that we continue to lose money. We cannot even repair them because of all the asbestos they contain. We need to get a billion dollar job, yeah. Yeah, we need to get rid of them, but we can't demolish them because of the asbestos they contain. Anybody who's got ideas, and that's where the, the thinking tank comes together. It's a good symbol. It's a good pro pro solution for the local problem, and it's a great solution for the national problem. So, yeah, I, I tend to see different levels when events are this big, yes. And it also brings in the an incredible control grid, which uh, those uh, hoping for a, a new world order, uh, not hoping, but planning, uh, engineering one, uh, this is it would be an essential element. We've basically evolved into a police state. Uh, as a result of 9-11 and COVID too. Uh, yeah. Well, you COVID. have brought us the information. Closing thought uh, from Massimo Mazzucco. You want a closing thought from me? I do. Uh, it's, all I can say is good night. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight. Thank you for staying up with us, let's Massimo. Let's keep awake. Let's, let's say let, the, the closing thought is let's keep away, not only with our eyes, with our brains, too. Ah, yes. Okay, let's do it like that. Incredible. And there's links on my website, richardgage911.org, uh, to the organization uh, and all of his employees <laughs> and volunteers. No, he does it by himself. Thank you, Mr. Massimo Mizuko. I am so grateful to you. We will goodbye see you. you. What? I said goodbye to you and also to your wife, Gail. Oh, thank you. And she she has a message for you personally. Uh, great show, you guys. Thank you so much, Massimo. You did an awesome job. You should check out the comments on YouTube. Very positive feedback and support. The viewers love you. 
I have to go, but I would be so very honored right. to meet you someday soon. We'll make that happen. Okay, my friend? All right. Thank you. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Uh, here we go. Thank you for joining us on yet another informative and soul-stirring episode of Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed. We'll be on the air again next week with another very special guest in the 9-11 Truth Movement and beyond. Visit us at richardgage911.org where you can find our schedule, learn about the WTC evidence, and of course, sign up for our emails and support us. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Subscribe.